When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So it has been an exciting couple days to, to kind of wrap up the trading year here in 2019. And even going back a week or two when, when, when gold ultimately broke through uh, 1483 level and, and ultimately 1500 and and now uh, finding some resistance around 1520 to 1525 and, and with silver certainly following suit to the upside. This is hardly come as a surprise as something I talked about a couple weeks ago uh, on how a, a big move up in gold and, and silver was was imminent in my opinion. I think that the video I put out or the podcast was was a, a high conviction prediction for gold. And and well, I, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because I've made plenty of incorrect calls, but thus far it has been correct. And that's what I want to talk about today and what we can expect as we head into 2020, as well as a couple other topics, a few other topics that I've sort of handpicked to, to discuss today. Before I get to any of that, though, uh, if if I could ask a favor of you, maybe maybe this can be your New Year's resolution if you're into that type of thing, or or a late Christmas gift for me, or, or maybe you don't want to support me on Patreon, which I totally understand, or whatever it is. My uh, my favor that I ask of you is to begin listening to me on a podcast platform rather than YouTube. No, I'm not leaving YouTube, and I get it. You don't have to completely leave YouTube either. But ultimately, what I do here is is a podcast. It's not video. And and furthermore, I'm, I'm, I've am I'm talked many times about how I'm sort of sick of YouTube uh, and, and the way they treat creators, especially those that have voices and, and opinions that differ from their, their largely liberal and, and corporate agenda, uh, including my own, right? And so, no, my videos haven't been banned. I don't really deal with much demonetization issues anymore. My channel obviously is still up. However, shadow bans are a real thing, right? YouTube generally is a merit-based system. You get rewarded for putting out good content that gets views, watch time, and subscriptions. However, YouTube does oftentimes recommend videos and creators less that they feel they, they disagree with. They don't want their voice being spread. And I feel that my voice, as well as many others, have been targeted by YouTube. And that's why I'm asking you guys once again to to make this switch over to the podcast format. There's a link down below in the comment section to Spotify or Apple, Apple Podcasts, but I am on most major podcast platforms. It doesn't really matter to me which one you choose, but but I would appreciate that. And again, maybe it can be a late Christmas gift or whatever. I'm, I'm not leaving YouTube. I'm just happy to have you guys here in the first place, but I would appreciate that immensely. Now, moving to the main topic of today's podcast, uh, Silver and Gold. Uh, they've been doing really well, right? You guys already know that, already said that. And and first of all, we'll talk about some key levels here in, in regards to gold. Uh, it's It might be a stretch to say that gold is, is knocking on the door of new what would it be now? Five or six or seven year highs. Going back to to 2013, that was the last time that gold was sort of in this range, with the exception of, of course, earlier this year when it made a top around 1550, 1555 in that ballpark range. Maybe, maybe I forget. Maybe it might have gotten north of 1560 on like a uh, during a, some period in the day, right? Uh, currently, it sits at 1520 to 1525 in that range, uh, which is 
sort of a resistance level that it found prior to moving up north of 1550 earlier this year. Again, not surprising to, to, for it to find some of those same resistance levels this time around. And uh, this is sort of in line with, with what I expected. And I think that this trend, though there's obviously the potential or likelihood of, of pullbacks along the way, is likely going to continue at least through January, potentially through February of 2020. Which, which raises the question, you know, is gold going to find new six or seven year highs uh, in the first month or two of 2020? And is it even going to surpass $1,600? Now, seasonality is on its side, but that's not good enough for me when it comes to, to gold and, and comes to silver, which I'll discuss more as well here in a minute. Uh, I think there's some other factors at play here as well. Ultimately, we, we have to ask ourselves, why is is gold making this move to the upside? Why is silver making this move to the upside? And I think the the, the go-to answer would be the dollar. The dollar is moving to the downside. And, and it is. It's in the 96 range, under 96 and a half, uh, which is, um, you know, the lowest has been dating back to sometime in the middle of the summer. I'm guessing probably after the Fed uh, uh, first began to to telegraph or begin their rate cut process back in, if I remember right, June of, of 2019. It, it's had a really poor December, really poor last quarter of the year, honestly. In fact, it was it was north of 99 uh, earlier this year, you know, September, October, and whatnot. Uh, currently sits below 96 and a half. Now, why is that the case, though? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. And, and ultimately, I think that maybe the most obvious answer is is probably the correct one, and that is Fed policy. It, I'm not going to pretend that it's as simple as that. Right, but what the Fed is doing right now is invariably dollar bearish. It's it's going to drive the dollar down, and ultimately, what I'm talking about is the Fed, their repo uh, market in, uh, operations, as well as their QE, which of course Jerome Powell, I'm sure, insisted that his day is not QE, even though most people are treating it as just that. Now, I want to talk more about the repo market here, you know, later on in this podcast. But but the gist of what I'm saying here is is that quantitative easing as well as repo market operations are going to be deemed by the Fed as as completely necessary for probably the rest of of our lives. I mean, that's I'm I'm, I'm being somewhat facetious in saying that I, I'm only in my 20s, so I don't know what the Fed's going to be doing. But but I, I imagine the Fed very well may not exist or, or not be here uh, 20, 30, 50, 60, 80 years from now, right? Uh, who knows, right? Maybe in some way, shape, or form. But but certainly through the end of this cycle, through the end of of this, if you want to call it economic expansion, uh, stock bull market, and and even to the downside of the bear market, almost for sure that the Fed is going to have to be in some way, shape, or form supporting these markets. Now, I mean, they've been supporting these markets even during quantitative tightening, even during uh, rate hikes. They've been supporting the markets. I mean, I'll remind you, the Fed carries a balance sheet which currently sits north of four trillion dollars. That's essentially mortgage-backed securities and, and treasury bonds that the Fed is keeping on their balance sheet because they know that if they were to dump them all, the markets wouldn't be able to support that. It's it's a support for the market, right? Even when they kept their balance sheet even, they were consistently buying treasury bonds as their old ones would matured and rolled off their balance sheet. They they bought new ones, right? But that's going to continue to an even greater extent uh, heading into 2020 and beyond, right? 2010s were, were sort of the year... Uh, sorry, the decade of, of Fed interventions. 
but but I don't think we've seen anything yet. I don't think 2020 is going to be anything different. 2010s, even though it started slightly before you know 2010, during that 2008 2009 recession period, 2010s were were exceptional, but. I think it's only going to be ratcheted up to, to another level by by the Fed and by other central banks in terms of, of their intervention in markets. And, and so, you know, I think that's sort of the primary culprit for why gold and silver have been really excelling here at the at the end of 2019. I mean, do we have to make it more complicated than that? And so uh, I'll talk more about that here in a second. Uh, let's shift gears and talk about silver first here, uh, which has been... Uh, doing fairly well uh, as i speak not above $18 an ounce unfortunately uh it, it was actually very recently above $18 an ounce it's currently trading around uh, 1786 level 1785 uh traded as high as as 1812 1813 um or earlier this week uh and it's been doing well it's it's not as much strength as as or i would like to see more strength in the silver market but but i'm fine with this move to to the upside um it's certainly well shy of its highs for 2019 which were north of $19 an ounce for for a brief period of time there and i won't expect to to see that in 2020 until gold starts knocking out some of those levels as well it's it's you know the, with this bull market continuing for silver and gold it, it on one hand is certainly an expectation of mine to see silver at much much higher levels. However, I also view this bull market as still sort of being in its infancy, or, or adolescence maybe. Uh, it, it's it's about a year since the bottom, a year and a couple months, and gold still has a long ways to go. Right, it's only at fifteen twenty something. Right, it's not even the highest it's been in this bull market yet. Right, it still has to 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 test some new highs for this cycle, and and move more of the sixteen hundred, seventeen, ultimately north of two thousand. And and with all of that, I mean, what I'm saying here is that gold has a long ways to run, because as I said before, the Fed is, I mean, everything the Fed is doing is is not changing, uh, as well as central banks around the world. That's only going to increase demand uh, and, and weaken the dollar, increase demand for for precious metals. And, and drive the price up based on, on supply and demand as well as, as speculation and whatnot. And so silver has plenty of time to catch up and ultimately uh, um, far outpace gold to the upside. It has already. I mean, I'll remind you that that it wasn't all that long ago that the gold to silver ratio was was well north of 90 to 1. As I speak, it's in the 84 to 85 range, right? So not as low as it's been in the past, not as low as 2011 when it was was around 34 to 1, uh, but still moving in the right direction. So so stay positive on silver. I, I certainly am positive on silver. I wouldn't be surprised to see $20 silver in the first month or two of, of 2020. Um, but but as I said, you know, it's 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 also going to be somewhat dependent on gold moving to the upside as well. I don't think silver, absent of, of some major move in especially on the physical side of the market or total collapse of the paper market uh or or closure of some major mines or something along those lines i don't envision silver independently moving let's say north of 20 or 25 or 30 or pick your number with gold sort of just sitting there right i think it's going to be both of them moving to the upside but silver ultimately as it has over the last you know year or whatever outpacing gold significantly so gold's going to knock out those numbers 1600 18 2000 uh and 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 well beyond that but but silver along the way is going to 
to move much more rapidly during that that period of the bull market from my perspective right um so anyways that's that's sort of where we're looking at right now for silver obviously it'd be you know some of the key levels would be watching is for to to maintain 18 plus dollars an ounce um and and then ultimately we're we're looking at 1950 i'd say uh, as as kind of that next level that we're looking at that that was ultimately sort of where it reached uh earlier this year uh, 1950 and so we'd be looking for it to knock out that level and then ultimately $20 which is a nice round number that it's really struggled with lately but but even my podcast last week $20 in 2020 is is something I fully expect so anyways moving on to to the Fed right which we've already kind of discussed here um, th- let's talk about the repo market uh, the Fed has been supporting the repo market through their repo market operations for I think come back to September. Um, although you know, reading some different articles or looking at some older articles and their headlines dating back to to early 2019, the first half of 2019 at least, it, it was sort of expected by a lot of ex- experts that the Fed would have to intervene in the repo markets anyways. And maybe that's been the case for a long time. But but you see these these terms thrown around like the standing um, uh, repo market operations and whatnot. Uh, it's a it's sort of been expectation for a while. It just finally became a reality in September, and and then wrapped up, uh, ramped up pretty significantly following that. Now, towards the end of 2019, there was a big fear that there would be a, a major spike in the repo rates, these short-term funding markets, that the Fed is is uh, intervening in at this point in time, and so they they threw a ton of money at the problem, as the Fed tends to do, as central banks tend to do, uh, opened up a huge amount of of liquidity if needed, to these banks, which are, are having trouble uh, getting their hands on, on cash, on liquidity, on an overnight basis, on a, in a longer dated term basis. And lo and behold, it was, you know, thus far enough. Now, I've been, I've been listening around, um, reading around and whatnot, uh, to, to some different opinions on, on why this is going on in the repo market. And, and I think there, there are some there's a lot of, I think, market participants. There's a lot of, of even, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to make a broad generalization, but, but like CNBC hosts or fans or, or or just real kind of surface analysis, like let's just look at the markets, the stock market from a tier, purely bullish or purely um, technical standpoint or whatever, never focus on these fundamentals. The Fed's just kind of neither here nor there. They view this as, as sort of just something that's happening. It's the repo market needed intervention, and so the Fed stepped in. And, and this is normal and whatnot. The Fed did this in the past, and, and there's nothing to see here. And I think that's, a Fed, that, that's exactly what the Fed would like you to, to believe. But there is a lot of bright minds, and I'd, I'd even bring up like somebody like a Luke Roman from, from Forest for the Trees, who, who I uh, listen to quite a bit and respect a fair bit, uh, and his perspective on why the Fed is doing these repo market operations. Why did they have to step in in September? And ultimately, it, it comes to... What what he would call Voldemort, um, which which if you listen to him, you you know what I'm talking about. If not, I, I'd encourage you to Google uh, Luke Groman Voldemort. But but what he's talking about here is basically a balance of payment problem for the for the U.S. government. Essentially, they they have a lot of issue. They, they have a lot of debt to issue as as the debt continues to to grow at a, at a ridiculous pace a trillion plus a year they also have a lot of debt to to roll over something like 6 plus trillion dollars because so much of us debt these days 
is is uh, short term six plus trillion dollars over like six months to to roll over and and simply put i mean there's there's only so much that that normal buyers in the markets can can uh i guess satisfy that that supply right or or meet that supply with with demand at least at current uh current treasury rates right two percent or less right i think that the 30 year might be well over two percent but but relatively low rates there's only so much of the markets can do foreign investors just haven't really been doing it foreign central banks haven't been doing it as much in the past uh, domestic investors to some extent have been a lot of it's been the banks though that have had to step in and, and basically satisfy that that uh, or meet that that supply coming onto the market and ultimately this repo market business this blowout in rates was basically the the bank saying look we we can't just keep adding these bonds, this debt to our balance sheet. We we we're running out of liquidity and whatnot. And so the Fed basically said, "Look, we'll we'll open up our repo uh, uh, markets and and we'll provide that liquidity. Right? We'll buy those bonds on an overnight basis or a two week basis or whatever, and and provide that liquidity. But also, basically, on on an ongoing basis, borderline monetizing debt. Right? Basically, they are." They are meeting that supply that the U.S. government is is bringing to the market, and and that's ultimately why they've had to continue in this repo market madness over the last uh, like five months or four months or whatever, dating back to September. It's been because without that, uh, repo market rates would would spiral out of control, and with that, you'd see U.S. Treasury rates spiral out of control pretty quickly. U.S. short-term funding rates spiral out of control you know 10 plus percent and, and obviously that's just not realistic for the u.s government the u.s government would in one way or another default if if that was the case for for longer than you know a couple of weeks and so we, we have to ask ourselves if that's really the case yes there's long-term implications for what this really means for the u.s government i mean ultimately it means more and more monetization of debt that this debt problem is is much worse than a lot of people realize and that what people have been talking about for for 10 20 30 40 years about runaway debt in the united states is finally finally to some extent coming to a head but what this also means for fed policy is they are um you know as some some would call it uh, i think luke Roman even referred to it as this they've had their whatever it takes moment now uh, sort of taking a page out of Mario Draghi and, and the ECB's playbook uh, many years ago, they are having their own whatever-it-takes moment. I don't remember when Mario Draghi said that, actually. <laughs> it might have been a couple of years ago. I've, I forget in the timeline of all this. But but uh, that basically the Fed is stepping in and saying, we are necessary not only to, to keep the repo markets functioning, but, but to keep the U.S. government solvent. And so what this means is is greater and greater amounts or at least ongoing amounts of, of repo market operations that what's happening here at the end of the year 2019 is, is maybe going to be somewhat ramped down but is ultimately going to have to continue or else there, there just won't be enough demand to meet that supply coming onto the market in terms of, of U.S. government debt, short-term and long-term. And what this also means is that the Fed is also going to have to engage in more and more QE. I mean, right now, this is not QE of $60 billion a month, which is a lot to support. I mean, on a yearly basis, that's $720 billion a year that the Fed is, is buying of, of U.S. debt, monetizing that debt, that that's going to have to ramp up. And it's also probably going to have to include some, some long-term uh, bonds as well, not just some short-dated 
bonds or our bills as well. So that's what we have to look forward to. And so that that's obviously very bullish for precious metals. It's it's likely going to cause inflation to to continue to rise. I, I, you already hear some people talking about how 2020. I mean, saw a headline from CNBC about how 2020 could be the year of of inflation scare here in the United States. I don't see why not. I mean, the Fed is is monetizing debt. They're increasing their balance sheet at a ridiculous pace, and and it's all the while you know in, in the back with the backdrop of of stocks at basically all time highs, which which brings me to the stock market. Um, it's it's uh, it's it really crazy valuations right now. Obviously, that it goes without being said. If you've been following these markets, even if you are bullish, I think we can agree that yeah, maybe these stocks can can obviously go higher, but but they're ridiculously overvalued right now. And so we we have to ask ourselves heading into 2020, as this 2019 repo market scare has has kind of gone with. Uh, coming on without uh, out actually happening, largely because the Fed intervened and provided so much liquidity and, and said that they would provide even more liquidity if needed. As that liquidity is removed, as, as we would expect it to be, right? If t- the end of 2019 was such a big turning point in the, or, or, or pressure point in this repo market, the Fed is likely going to unwind that portion of its balance sheet, or a good portion of it at least. What does that mean for, for stocks? I mean, it's it's almost a sure thing over the last uh, three or four months that that when the Fed is adding to its balance sheet, stocks are going up and, and vice versa, although they haven't really subtracted from their balance sheet on, on very many weeks or months over the last uh, couple months. And so if the Fed is going to unwind part of this repo market operations and thus decrease its balance sheet heading into 2020, you know, through January, we... Uh, well, what does that mean? I mean, to put this in perspective, Zero Hedge even has a chart here. And, you know, it maxed out that the Fed repo operations, that their total cash actually in the market topped out around $250 billion. This is not including their ongoing QE, but $250 billion that they had to offer in terms of support. However, according to everything the Fed's been saying, by the middle of January, by the 15th of January, their total cash actually in the market through these repo operations is going to be $50 billion, which is significantly less than the peak and significantly less than what's at right now, you know, just shy of $200 billion. And so when you, when you suck out $150 plus billion of liquidity out of the markets, which has thus helped not only prop up stocks, but propel them to new all-time highs, give a great finish with the exception of today, uh, a great finish to 2019, what does that mean for stocks heading into 2020. I mean, invariably, it has to be bearish unless one of two things happens. Well, I mean, unless one thing happens, and, and that is that the Fed basically comes out and says, well, we're still here in one way, shape, or form. It could be through through ongoing huge amounts of support to the repo markets. It could be through increased amounts of, of quantitative easing. It could be through through telegraphing that that QE is is here to stay beyond quarter one of 2020, which is currently the plan. Uh, it could be telegraphing more interest rate cuts, it, whatever it takes. I mean, that's kind of where the Fed is at right now. I mean, imagine this is this is sort of a dangerous uh, alternative that the Fed could be looking at, uh, actually shrinking their balance sheet, shrinking their repo market operations heading into 2020. 
and thus allowing not only the stock market to fall potentially off a cliff. I, I think it's at very precarious levels. It could drop like a rock. I'm not talking like 50% overnight, but I'm talking a 10% correction in the span of like five trading days. That's absolutely possible given how crazy this end to 2019 has been, right? Uh, but but also, you run the risk of, of short-term funding, once again, freezing up with some of those fears and liquidity being sapped out of the system. And so I, I don't expect the Fed to allow something like that to go on for more than a more than a week. And and once again, the Fed is going to step in, even though they're already acting in these markets through their through their not QE. They're going to step and and, and any other repo market operations which are are going to continue at at a reduced rate, but you know still fifty billion dollars on an overnight basis. They're going to have to step into an even greater extent than probably they did before, and it's going to be not only stepping in to the tune of a, an extra hundred or two hundred billion dollars for the repo markets and and telegraphing QE beyond uh, March twenty twenty, but but it's also going to be uh, basically without a a definite end. Right. I mean, you can find a, a reason to be bullish a dollar by, by thinking, you know, well, the Fed is is stepping out of these markets as we head uh, into 2020 or at least reducing their presence. And so, hey, that's going to be dollar bullish. But all of a sudden, if the Fed says, look, we're we're, we're kind of jumping the gun here. Maybe we should keep this liquidity in the system and, and continue buying these these bonds for, for another three months, six months or indefinitely, then that's very bearish for the dollar. Right. So. Something to keep an eye on as, as we head into 2020. It'll be interesting, perhaps even more interesting, and, and ultimately more important for the price of silver and gold and, and inflation going forward than whatever potentially could have happened here at the end of 2019. Because we all knew that the Fed was going to step in and try and control it anyways, even if rates blew out uh, you know, today or yesterday. I mean, the Fed would step in, right? They, they would, they've made it very clear that they were not going to allow that to, to happen. Now, moving on... Uh, I want to take some time to talk about uh, consumer confidence. Just some quick numbers here from Zero Hedge, signifying that maybe U.S. economy and, and consumer confidence is not as high as some people would expect it to be. Uh, present situation. These were these were recent numbers that that were um, released. Uh, I think just today, actually. Uh, present situation confidence for where we're at right now from from a consumer perspective. Uh, it rose from 166.6 last month to 170 this month. Uh, consumer confidence expectations going forward, though, which is probably what's more important, fell to 97.4 from 100.3 last month. And, and furthermore, in terms of, of their uh, confidence uh, uh, going forward or whatever, this is the... Fourth consecutive drop on a year-over-year basis, for for in terms of months, right? Um, fourth uh, month in a row that on a year-over-year basis, this consumer confidence is is declining, right? Um, furthermore, uh, expectations for stock market gain also faded, also fell this month. Um, so so I mean, really, more evidence that the Fed. Uh, despite their their interventions in the markets and propping up of the stock market, has not really turned the tide on on consumer confidence and their expectations going forward. Uh, that that even with a, a crazy end of the year final quarter of 2019 in the stock market, consumers are still you know not in a great spot or feel that the economy is is not in a great spot going forward. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about was. 
this is from so we shift gears from the financial world to the geopolitical world uh, and, and we'll wrap up with this i think this is worth listening to something to pay attention to and that is of course a situation in the middle east which to, to catch you guys up on um basically you know to go back to let's say the the 2003 u.s invasion of iraq we, we toppled the saddam regime and we kind of instilled our own government as, as we tend to do. I mean, that's regime change, right? And, and we hung around for many, many years before finally leaving. And then for the most part, you know, I don't know if we've ever really completely left Iraq since 2003, but, but we left for the most part. ISIS uh, filled that power vacuum uh, in, in the midst of, of, you know, with the background of the Syrian civil war. Um, and then ultimately we, we had to come back. We, we helped Iraq and their government retake much of their territory from ISIS. Uh, we, we supported the rebels in their fight against the ISIS as well as against the, the, um, the, the Assad regime, despite the fact that, you know, this is, this is the official narrative I'm telling you. What, what many people won't tell you is that uh, the people we're supporting oftentimes were, were pretty extremist rebels. Furthermore, there's a lot of evidence that, that ISIS in the first place uh, uh, had a lot of support from the United States before we ultimately uh, uh, decided that they, that they were the boogeyman we had to to eliminate from from the face of the from the face of the earth. But that moves us to, to kind of 2019 here, where Iraq largely has become more independent of the United States, and and has regained a fair bit of sovereignty, and in fact has been very adamant that they want the U.S. as much as possible out of their country. I, mean, I don't blame them. However, there's also been a fair bit of, of Iranian influence in Iraq as well. That Iran has, has I don't want to call Iraq a, a, an Iranian proxy, but their influence has increased significantly, you know, despite the fact that the U.S. has been there you know, all along. And so uh, what we're dealing with right now in Iraq is, is sort of an uprising, uh, a, a new resurgence of, of insurgents or or i mean that was always a classic term for for those in, in iraq but you can call them whatever militia or or uh whatever um to some extent potentially iranian proxies um fighting back against the united states or, or in this case there was a, a u.s contractor uh that was killed and uh the u.s responded by carrying out airstrikes against iran uh, official story and it's probably some truth to it iran backed iraqi militia this is over the past weekend and you know he's largely donald trump he largely has blamed this these attacks on on iran and and it has now called for iraq iraqi citizens to rise up against not the united states their their protectorate slash um you know oppressor over the last 15 plus years uh but but iran and, and i get I, I get it you know you guys hopefully by now know my my stance when it comes to foreign policy that that i'm not saying here that iran's a good guy or that iraq's a good guy i just don't think that the u.s is the good guy right uh that that we limit by ourselves by viewing every geopolitical conflict through the lens of, of good guy versus bad guy that's very easy to, to look at this from a a uh, bad guy versus bad guy type of of uh, point of view. I mean, a great example, a classic example would be World War II. Uh, who was it that ultimately was instrumental in in destroying the Nazis, taking over Nazi Germany? 
Uh, yes, the U.S. was instrumental once we joined the war. Yes, the British and the French and, and everyone else that, that helped on, on the Allied side of things. But who was it that was on the eastern front of Germany's expanding and then ultimately shrinking empire? It was the Soviets, right? The Soviets, without the Soviets and, and the tens of millions of people that they lost, I forget the, the totals, but it was huge compared to France or the U.S. or the U.K., uh, without the Soviets, we probably would not have, have won, or at least it would have been at, at a much, much higher cost. I don't know if we could have retaken France, right? Who knows? It would have been much, much bloodier than, than how it ultimately ended, even though it was extremely bloody for, for the Soviets. And yet, were the Soviets good? I mean, no. And, and again, I mean, I'm not saying that, that the U.S., um, you know, after the after World War II, we got we got involved in a lot of stuff too, including the Korean War, but but even more notably involved in Vietnam. And, and, and I think a lot of you guys, as well as myself, would disagree with a lot of that. But but the Soviets, I mean, commies, I mean, they, they weren't good, right? And yet they were fighting the Nazis, right? Does that make the Nazis the good guys? No, obviously not. Uh, does that make the communists the good guys? No. Bad guys can fight bad guys, right? And, and I think we shouldn't say that, that the U.S. automatically is not a bad guy just because we're Western or we're from the U.S., right? I'm not saying that we're, you know, I'm not putting us on the same level maybe as, as communists, communist Russia or, or Nazi Germany. I'm just saying that, that we're hardly blameless. Uh, our, our, we're, we, we have a lot of blood on our hands as, as a country, as, as a military and whatnot. So, so anyways, that's what's going on right now. In fact, as I speak, you know, even just overnight and today, uh, the U.S. Embassy in, in Iraq has been uh, swarmed by, by protesters. They actually broke through, I think, the first wall or the first gate. And, and uh, as of right now, they're, they're sort of trapped in there. The, the, the most recent news from, from Bloomberg was about 100 Marines being sent from nearby Kuwait. This is a quote. 100 Marines sent from nearby Kuwait and two uh, Apaches, AH-64 as Apaches will fly over the embassy and show a force. So basically, these Marines are being dropped in, likely via uh, the the, um, the Marine Corps' Osprey aircraft, as well as Apache um, uh, helicopters to to provide you know some sort of air support. You know, this is not a good situation in Iraq. Uh, but but what's even more scary is is what this could end up being if if these protesters ultimately. Um, if, if this turns much more bloody than it has been thus far in Baghdad, and and there's actually exchange of gunfire, or if 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 attacks on U.S. troops, if this extends beyond just contractors and actually U.S. troops and U.S. forces and U.S. assets, which U.S. contractors are, but U.S. assets in Iraq by these militia, militias, that's that opens the door for a, a brand new proxy war in Iraq if not more, right? That's what, I don't know what I'm more afraid of, for, for the U.S. to straight up go toe-to-toe with Iran and, and their allies, you know, in the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and Israel, you know, going up against Iran, or another drawn-out proxy conflict in, in a country like Iraq. I mean, they're both equally bad situations, equally bad outcomes. But, but as it stands right now, it may, it may be swinging towards uh, a, a 
a proxy type war in Iraq between these Iranian-backed militias and U.S. forces or U.S. contractors or, or, or maybe the, to some extent, I, I, I hesitate to U.S.-backed Iraqi military because the Iraqi military has not been unfriendly to the U.S., but, but they have been far less, um, I guess, uh, uh, hospitable to us in, in recent months, wanting us basically out of the country. And so, you know, I don't know what direction this is going to go. I don't, I, I don't think this Baghdad situation is going to necessarily turn into something like a Benghazi um, <laughs> at this point in time. However, to, to see, you know, if you see a headline of, of a U.S. service member being killed in Iraq or a U.S. contractor, um, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago that that was pretty commonplace. But I would, I would, uh, I would warn you that that is a far more significant statistic number than it would be in, in years past. I mean, it's tragic to see tragic to see any person, you know, die in this type of a conflict, uh, civilian or otherwise. But if we see something like that happen, it's certainly going to signify that that Iranian militias or Iraqi backed or Iraqi militias backed by Iran or not backed by Iran. We we don't know the full truth to this. Are are targeting U.S. troops or contractors again, and and that's that opens the, the door for a major U.S. Uh, intervention once again in Iraq, and and potentially even even a uh, strike on Iran itself. So something to keep an eye out for. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Final podcast of of twenty nineteen. What do you guys think? I'm I'm going on thirty six plus minutes here. Um, I, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, as always. Uh, or at least over the last couple of weeks, I would encourage you to to follow me over in the podcast world. Again, there's a link down below in the comment section. You know, in the last, well, okay, I'll start off with this. Like two weeks ago, I, I told you guys, almost two weeks ago, that my goal was um, 20, uh, 20, what am I saying? 500 listeners an episode. That That as reference, I was around 250 to 300, but I wanted 500 by year. And I'm not there actually. But it has stepped up pretty significantly, approaching 400 listeners an episode, certainly well above 300 on average, right? It depends on, on video to video and day to day, but doing very well in terms of total listens uh, across the entire thing each day. It's, it's you know, in the 400 to even north of 500 some days range. I've had a ton of support from you guys, but I want to continue to push that number up. And so if you haven't yet, I encourage you to make the switch to the podcast format. Right? Get away from YouTube. You don't have to quit YouTube. But there's a ton of great podcasts already out there that are similar to my own. Uh, you know, uh, Silver Doctors has theirs. There's there's Macro Voices, McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, Carrie um, uh, Letts, uh, The Daily Coin, um, Quote the Raven. There's a ton of other great podcasts out there that are very financial or even precious metals related. So I'd encourage you to check me out over there. Again, link below in the comment section. But as always, I'm just happy to have you guys here in the first place. So thank you, truly, from the bottom of my heart for being my fans, my fans, it makes me sound like I'm a celebrity, but my supporters, my listeners over 2019. It's been a it's been an up and down year, but it's been a really a great year for, for me. I have so much to be thankful for from from my creator, for my God. And and you guys are, are certainly up there on that list. I I'm sorry, I'm I'm probably gonna put uh, maybe my wife and my family and, and whatnot uh above you guys but you guys are up there on that list uh, a ton of great supporters in the podcast world and and on youtube and I, I really truly thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for being there for me so thank you and have a great 2020 and and, and god bless